So uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 46 this morning. All right, let's read it together. All right, Psalm 46, for the, choir, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. <clears throat> Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come behold the works of Yahweh who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Why don't we pray this morning again? Lord, we uh, again come before you, before your throne. We're glad that you call it not just a throne. Um, Your enemies will come uh, as one, <laughs> one psalm says, your enemies will come cringing before you. Uh, Lord, that's not us. Uh, we don't come cringing before you to your throne, Lord. We come uh, to a throne that's called a throne of grace. Um, and Lord, uh, that's, that's good news because you are the king. You are the one who is uh, the one we uh, have to deal, deal with at the end of, end of our lives or on the judgment day. Lord, we'll be standing there before you giving, giving an account um, of everything done in the body, whether good or, or evil. And Lord, we're so thankful that um, on that day, as we give an account, uh, nonetheless, our ultimate righteousness is found not in ourselves, but in your son, the Lord Jesus, who uh, put himself in our place and died so that we can be set free from that burden of sin that we can't carry, um, or we can't pay for, we can't, um, you know, we can't cleanse ourselves, Lord. We, we are inherently um, filthy with sin, Lord. There's no other way of putting it. Uh, Lord, it takes you uh, rescuing us, Lord, uh, intervening on our behalf, uh, giving us a, a right standing before you, a righteousness that is alien to us, Lord. And we're so thankful to you for this reality, Lord. And uh, this morning we're reflecting on the fact that we, uh, we're not there yet, Lord. We're in the midst of a world of trouble, Lord, as it's always been since the fall. Um, uh, a world that is um, seemingly just... Uh, more and more um, shaken, Lord, more and more unstable. Um, we know this is uh, certainly the history of the world. We don't want to be narrow in our, our viewpoint, Lord, thinking that things are worse now than they've ever, ever been. We know that's not the case. Uh, it can always be worse. It has been worse. But Lord, nonetheless, uh, we want to uh, have eyes open to see um, the world through your lens, the lens of your word, and to rightly process everything we see and not to be um, not to be fretting, not to be fearful, not to be shaken uh, by any of these things around us, Lord, whether it's war or uh, personal turmoil, things going on in our personal lives, Lord, whatever it is, Lord, we need to uh, make you our refuge, and we, we pray that you would help us to do that this morning, that you would remi- remind us of what a great refuge you are uh, this morning through your word, and uh, we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, so 
It's, uh, of course, if you've been keeping up with the news, no surprise why we're looking at a psalm such as this. Um, you know, it's as if it wasn't enough to have one war with the uh, war in Ukraine going on. Now we have another war, um, war you know, between Israel and, and Hamas. And, of course, you know, war is nothing new, as I was saying in my prayer. You know, you think about the history of the world, and what is it? It's a history of war, right? I've always enjoyed history, liked history, but it wasn't until a few years ago that I realized, you know, uh, well, let me say this. I've never really liked war movies for whatever reason. Uh, I just, I don't know, just didn't really gravitate toward them. And then it struck me one day that, you know, if you're really gonna like history and say you like history, you don't have to like war, but you have to deal with war. You know, you have to acknowledge war. You have to try to understand it. And, and if you don't try to enter into uh, an, an understanding of what's going on there, you're never really gonna understand history because the history of the world is a history of war, unfortunately, right? That's the way it is. Um, there have been very few times of peace. The reason we have a, a Pax Romana is because it's set apart from other times in history, right? Um, the history of the world is one of turmoil, of the, war, the world being upside down, people being in enmity with one another, people doing land grabs, people not satisfied with what they have but pursuing to you know, take what's yours and make it theirs, right? We know this, we understand this, um, but it can certainly be a temptation in, in our modern Western, especially Western American context to see that as abnormal, right? We don't feel that. I mean, you know, what was, what was the last war where, where America really, average American really felt the, the nature of war? I mean, 9-11, Yes, we, it brought it back home. It was a fresh reminder, of course, of what could be the case. But it wasn't like you know, World War I, World War II, where we have a draft, where we have the average American setting things aside for the military and so forth. Um, to be honest, we just, the average person doesn't feel the, the threat of war in, in America, right? We just don't. That's just not the way it has been. Um, but what that can do, of course, <laughs> is make us have a, a uh, laissez-faire attitude toward life in general can make us have a self-confidence uh, or a confidence in, in, in our own military structures and, and power, the, the, the prowess of, of, of the military or our leaders or however you wanna you know, parse it out. It can engender that kind of false confidence. And the thing the Bible always wants us to, wants to pull us back to is don't put your trust in men. Don't put your trust in anything else other than the Lord, right? Um, and what this psalm in particular does is not give us all the specifics of what's going on in a given situation that the psalmist is addressing, although there very well may be one. The psalms are usually quite general because they can, they can address lots of things in, in life. You know, um, as, as God's people, we're going to have a common reality, a common uh, experience of what it means to live in a, in a fallen world and yet to be God's people called out of the world. And so this psalm, though we don't know all the, the specific details of what may have been in the psalmist's mind, it's kind of irrelevant. Like most of the psalms, it's general, that's fine, and it's for us. It's what God has given us to, to help us have the right perspective on how we ought to be living. Having said that, there is an interesting uh, thing about this psalm, though, though it doesn't specify all the ins and outs of a particular setting or situation, war does seem to be part of the, the fabric of the psalm. Verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. Uh, it, it seems as if at least one thing that may be going on here is, you know, kingdom rising against kingdom, striving of one nation against another, probably in the context of the, of the psalm, a, a Gentile nation, of course, uh, coming against Israel. And that, that 
uh, threat looming causes the psalmist to want to say, hey, <laughs> where, where's our hope, guys? Where's our hope, fellow Israelite? Is it in anything else out there other than the Lord? Certainly not, right? So, what does he, how does he come out of... How does he come out of the gate in the psalm? He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He starts with God, right? Of course, of course he starts with God. Where else can we start, right? It's, it's, it's quite interesting because he, he assumes a lot in that word God, doesn't he? It's not just any old God. It's the God of Israel. It's the God who made the heavens and the earth. It's the God who parts the Red Sea. It's the God who you know, delivers Israel time and time again in the book of Judges from their enemies. This is the God he's referring to. So there's a history, right? There's a history of who this God is. Um, when he says God is our, is our refuge and, and, and strength, it's not just theoretical, <laughs> you know, as if I want you to sit down and just ponder this theoretically. There's this theoretical God up there who, yeah, he's powerful and he could probably help you if he wanted to. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is this is the God of Israel. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is the God who has done all these great works over and over again for Israel. So how ought you to think about him? You ought to think about him as a great refuge, as your strength, because he's demonstrated to you that's who he is, right? Both corporately, for the people of Israel as a whole, the deliverances that he had you know, accomplished for them over and over and over again, primarily the one that always is you know, in the mind of the psalmist usually is, the, is deliverance from Egypt, but so much more than that, but also personal deliverances, right? You think about David over and over again, right? Having to entrust himself to the Lord, to make the Lord his refuge, um, and say you know, <laughs> that God is his, his rock, his, his high tower, his strong tower. That's the experience of every believer, that God is that for you. Whether you realize it or not, that's who he is. He is a refuge. It's, it's interesting, he doesn't say take refuge in God here. He says God is that refuge for you. That's who he is. He's a refuge. He's, he, he has strength. He's a refu- he, he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Um, I didn't get a whole lot, a lot of time to you know, do a lot of studying and research and dipping into commentaries and all this stuff, but... Um, one person said about this translation, it's kind of a traditional translation, very present help. It may just be trying to convey that he is a, a mighty help or something like that, but nonetheless, the, the fact remains that God, God's help is ready at hand, isn't it, right? He's not distant. The psalmist is trying to say, if you need help from the Lord, he's there. You don't have to build yourself up to, you don't have to, you know, do this and that thing, you know, to, to get help from the Lord. He's ready. It's just calling on him. The human propensity is naturally to think, okay, I'm in a bad way. I need help that's beyond me. Now, what can I do to get God's ear, get his attention, right? And the psalmist is saying, you don't have to do that. <laughs> He's a ready help. He's there. You don't have to do anything particularly to get his ear turned toward you. He's there. Why? Why is he there? Because you're his people, right? Because I'm part of his people. He has a heart for his people. It's like if, you're, if your neighborhood kid comes up to you, or a kid in your neighborhood comes up to you and, and needs something, you might kind of be like, okay, well, okay, I'll get to it eventually. But if your child comes up to you and needs something, that comes to the top of the list, right? And that's how God is with us, his people. You know, his ear is ready. You think about, uh, what is it, Luke 18, that uh, Jesus is talking about when we pray, 
We ought to pray persistently, certainly, but we ought to, to realize that God will not delay long over his elect, right? When we call out to him, he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't delay. He's like this. You know, book of Daniel, chapter nine. Daniel's praying for the people of Israel. It says the minute he starts praying, God sends out an angel to meet his prayer, right? To, to answer that prayer. God doesn't delay. It only seems like he delays because we are bound by our, the finitude of time and space, but God doesn't delay over us, his elect, right? He's a very present help, a ready help in time of trouble. And then the psalmist says, whatever it is that you can think of that is going on that's bad, whether it's war or personal situation in your life, whatever it is, I'm gonna make it worse. <laughs> the psalmist says, therefore, we're not gonna fear even if the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, he's saying this. I want you to think about the worst possible situation where everything is just falling apart quite literally, <laughs> where every, all the stability that God had baked into the cosmos is coming unraveled. I want you to think of that situation where the, the most stable thing in all of creation is, is a mountain in the, in the context of the scriptures. You know, mountains are often uh, pictured as, as stable, right? I mean, you can't move a mountain, right? This is why Jesus says, if you have a little bit of faith, you can say to this mountain, be picked up and transported and dropped into the sea, right? Because a mountain can't be moved, right? It's stable. And he says, even if a, if a, if a mountain slips into the heart of, a sea, of the sea, and the sea is roaring and surging and transgressing the bounds and doing what it's not supposed to be doing. You think back to Genesis 1, there's the sea. God causes the dry land, the seas to have their own place, their own boundary, right, is marked out, dividing the sea from the dry land, and the mountains come up out of that primordial sea, as it were, and there's a demarcation, there's a line of separation between the sea and the land. The psalmist is thinking back on that and saying, hey, if all that comes unraveled and the sea surges and overtakes the mountains, the mountains blend in with the sea, everything's falling apart, even then, what? God is a refuge and strength for you, right? An ever-present help in time of trouble, even in that situation. So what is a war, right? What is a personal financial situation? What is a marital struggle in respect to that, right? In contrast to those things, everything coming unraveling. If, if God is with you there as a refuge and strength in this time where everything's coming unraveled at the seams, all of creation is coming undone, if he's there for you then, how much more of these lesser things, right? I think that's the point the psalmist is making. That's why he says, even if, right? Even if this thing happens, this awful, terrible, worst possible thing happens, even then God is our refuge, right? And the reality is, brothers and sisters, this is gonna happen right? The end of all things is at hand, and God is going to wrap up human history with judgment and dissolution of the elements with intense heat, right? That's what Peter says in 2 Peter, that whatever that looks like, this cosmos, this creation is going away as it is, right? There's going to be a new heavens and new earth. Well, who can stand that, right? Who can withstand that judgment? God's people, <laughs> right? Us? Why? because we're God's people, that's the point. We're God's people, God is with his people. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, this is the theme. If God is with you, then he is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you, right? Right? 
What matters is God being with you, not how you feel, not your, the intensity of your struggle, your experience. It's God's presence with his people. That's why we always have to look back and have our minds renewed with who is this God, right? Because you just, if you just have like the world, this generic God out there um, who is who knows who, you know, who knows what he has done, we don't know. That's not who we are as, as believers. We have the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is how God presents himself, as a God who has embedded himself into history and done things with real people like us, right? So we don't need to fear, brothers and sisters. Those even in the midst of war in Ukraine, in Israel, in the Gaza Strip right now, who are God's people, they need to take refuge in God, right? They don't need to ultimately fear. Now we can say this, we can say this easily, just say it. But this is, I'm saying what the scripture says, that they need not fear, right? How can, how can we say this? Because God is a refuge and fully equipped to deal with the situation. That, that's, that's a supernatural thing, right? <laughs> how do you face down the threat of someone coming and taking your family away from you, like is happening now? The threat of your own life being taken from you? Well, the only way you can face that is, is if you realize that we have here no lasting city anyways, right? The things here are temporal. They're bound by time. They're passing away. They're ephemeral in comparison to what's coming our way, right, brothers and sisters? There's an eternal weight of glory that's awaiting believers. There's a place where no one can ever take us away. That's the new heavens, the new earth. No one can ever uproot the righteous from that sphere of existence, right? over and over again in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, the wicked have their feet set where? In slippery places, <laughs> right? Slippery places. Our feet are not in slippery places. We have a city of God, right? We have a city of God that we're, a, that we're currently part of, <laughs> right? But is, is not yet revealed fully because there's a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven which will blend with the new heavens and new earth and be one. We know that's not yet, but yet we are, we are citizens of, that, of that, he, that heavenly city. What does Paul say? Our citizenship is where, here? No, our citizenship is above, right? That's where our citizenship is, in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. This is why Augustine can write City of God in, you know, in, in the fifth century AD when the Gothic hordes are coming in destroying Rome, and he's, you know, everyone's thinking, well, the, the grandeur of Rome is just, you know, it's, it's falling apart. <laughs> there's, there's, Rome seems to be just uh, disintegrating, coming loose at the seams. And Augustine's saying, we have a glorious city of God. We have a glorious city of God that outlasts every human kingdom. So why put your hope in a human kingdom, right? And we're in the same place, brothers and sisters. This is why I find... Augustine's writing so helpful because we're in the same place in our country seemingly. Now God can turn it around in a moment's time if he wants to, but we're, we're coming unraveled at the seams. We all see this as believers, right? Right? <laughs> Morally, politically, in almost every respect. And Augustine would say to us, so what? We ha in a sense, ultimately, so what? We have a glorious city of God. Don't put your hope in this, in this earthly kingdom, Right? I'm not saying to have a laissez-faire attitude toward what's going on and, and, and not to, certainly not to pray, 
that we don't go in that direction. That's not the point. But I'm talking ultimate things here, right? Ultimately, our hope has to outlast this current kingdom, <laughs> right? Because earthly kingdoms all have expiration dates, right? All of them. I was thinking about the book of Daniel. Daniel has the chapter two, the vision of, of the, the statue that represents different kingdoms of the earth, right? And what happens? There's this image of a stone made without hands that comes and cr- crashes right, right into the bottom of the statue and decimates it. Then it says that stone becomes a great mountain that fills the whole world. Well, that's, that's an interesting image, but what is he talking about? He's talking about this glorious city of God, this kingdom of God is what he's talking about, that comes and destroys all earthly kingdoms, right? That's greater than and more ultimate than all, all earthly kingdoms. So coming back to the psalm here, verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. So he just got through talking about surging waters, right? He says, um, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So on the one hand, you have Water is such a great metaphor, right? <laughs> because water is both life-giving and potentially life-taking, right? It's, it's a quite, quite a macabre thought that you can be out in the middle of the ocean and, and, and die for, from thirst, right? You're out in the middle of water and you can die from thirst. You can go into the water and get clean or you can drown, right? It's, it's an apt metaphor for two realities. But here, the water that surges and roars and has its swelling pride threatening, threatening God's the stability of God's world, God refocuses and rechannels that water into a life-giving river that comes into the city of God, right? Well, it's interesting. There's no river in Jerusalem, actual Jerusalem, you know? Uh, there's no river there. There's springs. The, the Gion Spring is there, but there's no river. So what the psalmist is doing here is clearly, it's poetic in nature and it's, it's meta- metaphorical in nature. He's saying that God's, God's supply for his people is, is never ending. He can take the water that, that is surging and raging, he can channel it and focus it and provide life for his people and security and stability for his people, right? That's what a river is, that's what water is, is, is ultimately stability and security. If you look at a, a map of Egypt, especially ancient Egypt, but still to this day, same way, but ancient Egypt, you look at a map, where, where, are, all the, where are all the buildings? Where are all the structures? Right around the Nile, right? <laughs> right around the Nile. You get outside the Nile just a little ways and there's, there's no, nothing. I mean, it's just desert, right? Rivers give life. That's the, that's the power of the picture here. Apart from a river, apart from water, a water source, um, you're dead. And in here, in, in this psalm, the psalmist is saying, God takes this, this potentially threatening raging of rivers and, and, and waters, and he refocuses focuses that and channels it into life-giving stability and security for his people who are in this city of God, uh, the holy dwelling places of the Most High, he says. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. What a great thought. God is in the midst of her, right? God is in the midst of us, brothers and sisters, through the Holy Spirit, you know? God is not, in, even in this psalm, it's, it's, it's a powerful image to say God is in the midst of her because God is there through, through the temple uh, and the sacrificial system. God is there dwelling with his people. This is the city of the great king, Jesus says. He's there in the midst of his people. 
But now, God is in our midst in a much more profound way than just being in the midst of a city, right? God, God, is, God has filled us with his Holy Spirit, if you know him, and he's never gonna take that spirit away from you if you're in Christ, right? There's no way any believer could ever pray like David does in Psalm 51, God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. God is in the midst of us <laughs> all the time. He's never distant from you. He's never gonna leave you or forsake you, right? He's never gonna leave you as orphans. When Jesus goes and goes to prepare a place, why does he talk about the Holy Spirit so much? Because the Holy Spirit is his presence with his people, right? Right? Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit. God is in the midst of us, his people. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar the nations or kingdoms tottered. This is the same, the same word used up in verse two where he says, um, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, it's, it's the same word in Hebrew. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms slipped. Again, this, this same idea of, of nations and all their boasting and braggadocio and their supposed grandeur, they're just gonna slip off into the heart of the sea ultimately as it were. They're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're in slippery places. Why are they in slippery places? Because of God raising his voice and the earth melting. I didn't get a whole lot of time to look into what the, the imagery here is conveying, but I, I think it's ultimately one of judgment, an image of judgment. Uh, God calling these kingdoms into account. Uh, you think about Psalm 2, which is probably the closest language to this, this verse here, verse six. The nations made an uproar. Psalm 2, why do, why do the nations rage? The king is in an uproar, right? The people's devising a vain thing. Well, what is the end of that psalm? It's a psalm of, of, of salvation and judgment, but pri- primarily judgment, right? It's the, it's the kingdoms of the world raising themselves up against God, thumbing their nose at God, and God saying, my answer to that is I've installed my king on Zion, right? And he's going to shatter all the nations with a rod of iron, and all, the only people who are safe from, from this shattering are those who kiss the sun, right? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. That's how the, that's how the psalm ends. He says, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. It's the, same, it's the same thing here, brothers and sisters. How blessed are we who take refuge in God, right? There's only, there's only two directions to go here. It's putting your trust in God or other things, right? And wh- how does that work out with other things? What, what ways in which do we put our, our trust in other things? Well, in the, in the scriptures is often, of course, idols <laughs> in the first place, right? Which is the most grotesque way of, of betraying God. You think about the golden calf, right? So you're, gonna, you're going to be delivered from Egypt, Israel, and then you're going to turn around and you're going to make a calf and say, this calf, which I think is representing a false god ultimately, but this calf brought us up out of the land of Israel, uh, of Egypt. That's what you're gonna do, right? That's the most grotesque form of idolatry. But then there are other ways, right, of, of not putting your trust in God. There's saying, well, um, you're going to make military alliances, right, with other kingdoms. Oh, well, Israel has this, you know, the Assyrians coming up against them, what are we gonna do? We're gonna reach out to Egypt, right? Well, that's another way we can betray the Lord and not put our trust in the Lord. Or maybe more, more foundationally in your heart, you begin to trust in chariots and horses, right? That's another way of, of falsely 
um, having a false hope. I had this verse somewhere. Let me find it here. Yep. Some boast, Psalm 20, verse 7, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Another, just another um, similar idea here. The horse is a false hope for victory, ultimately, right? It's another, another psalm says that. So how, do we, how could we potentially, or anyone, potentially, you know, take this approach as far as not trusting in God, but trusting in a horse or a chariot? Well, we have quite a bit of technology, don't we, in our, in our modern age. Uh, I've been thinking about technology quite a bit as we have been talking to the youth about this off and on. Um, and technology is great in so many ways, right? But it can also become a source of, of pride and, and a source of um, comfort, a source of ultimate identity. And in the case of the, the Old Testament, a chariot and a horse is high, you know, top drawer technology. <laughs> it's like the highest level of technology available as far as war goes. So the temptation is to put your hope in these things, these machinations of war, right? The, the, the war horse, the, the chariot, whatever else, you know, a spear. Um, God says, don't put your hope in those things. Or in our case, don't put your trust in a military industrial complex, you know? I mean, we live in a country that has arguably the greatest military in the world, right? I mean, I think that's pretty much hands down. We could easily do that, you know? Israel has pretty good military. They have our backing. They, they can easily do that. It's a temptation from the human standpoint, vantage point, to, to think that just because God gives you certain things that can be used one way or the other for good or ill, but in this case for, for protection, that that is something to put a, your hope in or your trust in. You may, if you remember right after, um, after the Israelites spy out the land and they come back in and they give the false report and so forth, right after that they decide to go in and, and, and fight, I forget, go up in the hill country and fight the, I can't remember the people group, but they get sorely beaten, right? Even though God tells them, don't go, don't go do this battle. God's not with you. God's not with you. They go anyways and get you know, decimated, as it were. Um, because ultimately it doesn't matter what implements of war you have, it matters again if God is with you or not, right? That's why a war horse or a chariot is a false hope because ultimately these are things that God has control over and sovereignty over. Um, that nothing, no implements of war are separate from God's, God's sovereignty, his rule. Yahweh of, of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is Yahweh of armies. This word host is used of, of heavenly hosts, but also of angels, a host of angels, and a host in the sense of a, a, an army, right? And I think that's the, that's the connotation here is that, that Yahweh has hosts at his disposal, right? He has his own army as it were, and he's with us. He's with us. The God of, of Jacob is our stronghold. Last little piece here, and then I want to say uh, something about Israel, uh, how we ought to think about Israel, but just to make a few more points here on the last four verses. Sorry to be, uh, if I'm rambling at all, but I haven't had very much time to prepare this, so the Lord will have to take what, he, take what, you're, take what I'm giving and make it, I've been giving and I'm giving, trying to give to you and do something with it. But Psalm, uh, Psalm 46, verse eight, come behold the works of Yahweh who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. So what is he talking about here? Well, on the one hand, of course, 
God throughout the history of the world and the history of Israel uh, intervened for the sake of, uh, you know, for their victory in war. But it seems here that what the psalmist is referring to is something more ultimate, something more final, a final peace, a final judgment, a final victory over all opposing wicked forces. Because it says he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. This is, I think, an ultimate vision of what God is going to do at the end of history, right? It's a, it's a gathering of all the nations together, uh, Joel chapter three, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and he's going to judge them, and, it, and the, that judgment is the simultaneous deliverance of his people, right? And when I say of his people, what I mean is, of course, those who ultimately trust in the Lord and his Christ and not in themselves, right? That's what makes us the people of God, those who, who don't trust in ourselves. Um, people of God can sound, can sound very pompous to the world, right? Well, I'm, I'm one of the people of God, right? And of course, that's not the way we mean it. It's certainly not the way we should mean it. When we say we belong to God, what we mean is we're the, we're the called out ones, right? We're the elect. We're the ones called out from among the rest. It's the work of God that makes us the people of God, not something we've done. So God is going to break the war bow, cut the spear in two, burn the chariots with fire, and salvation will ultimately come through judgment. There's no way around it, you know? Uh, you can talk about world peace all day long. It's not gonna happen without judgment because the reality is until sinners are removed from the earth, again, in the language of, of the psalmist, there's gonna be no peace <laughs> on this world, in this world. Sinners have to be removed from the, from the earth and we'd be in that same boat of sinners <laughs> apart from the, the grace of the Lord Jesus in our lives, right? Cease striving and know that I am God. Um, I think this is probably... I know this, this is a verse put up on people's walls a lot, and forgive me if this is put on your wall, but I think this is probably not referring to us ceasing our striving, but more the nation ceasing their striving against God, kind of, a, again, a Psalm 2, a raging against God. They're supposed to, to aban- abandon all of that, all that pushing against God, bucking against God, and realize that he is God, right? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Psalm ends with, just a reiteration of Yahweh of hosts being with us, the God of Jacob being our stronghold, that ultimately our hope can't be in anything else other than, than God himself. Our hope cannot be in men or the, you know, or the implementations of men. It has to be in God himself. Um, one more thing I wanna say, and I, don't, you know, I know we're running, uh, well, we have a little more time, but one more thing I wanna say is um, in, in light of what some people put on social media regarding Israel and their state in biblical prophecy. Now, <laughs> I think most of us are on the same page here, but it's worth, it's worth saying and it's worth a reminder and maybe some of you just need to hear this anyways. Um, to state it clearly, Israel is not God's people in the sense that all Israel is good with God. Are we all on the same page here? I hope so. <laughs> because when you read on social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, you, you know, if you're on social media, you see a lot of things about, you know, the, on the opposite side of the spectrum, saying, hey, you know, God is, God is with Israel no matter what they do, and, you know, he's behind them with this war, and yada, yada, yada. So just to be clear, <laughs> you know, Paul is, Romans 9, is grieved for the sake of his countrymen, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Why? 
because so many of them have rejected their Messiah. That's the whole point, he's, that's why he's grieved, right? Right? When you read through chapter nine, Romans chapter nine through 11, the whole answer to that for Paul is that, yes, he's grieved, but he's not ultimately perplexed because this is the way God has always dealt in human history, right, with his people. There's going to be an Israel, that's Israel according to the flesh, and there's an Israel according to promise, Romans chapter nine. And we can just flip over there, just, I know you, you all read this probably plenty of times, but just to read that, that verse, uh, chapter nine, verse seven, I believe it is. <clears throat> starting in verse, verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So you would think that Paul is kind of pushing in that direction based on what he says in verses one through five. It seems like God's word has failed to his people because they're rejecting Messiah, right? They're rejecting Christ as Jesus as, as the Christ. But he says, Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed because they are not all Israel who are Israel, who are descended from Israel. Point being, God has always had a remnant. Right? This is how he's always operated. God has always had a people within the people of Israel. There's Israel according to the flesh. You can call them you know, descendants of Abraham because they are. But there's, there's another subset within that larger group which are according to promise, Israel according to promise, who, who have the faith of Abraham. Paul says in Galatians, I think it's chapter three, that anyone who has that faith of Abraham is also a child of God, a descendant of Abraham, right? So Paul says here, back in Romans chapter nine, verse seven, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. So we're not gonna go do an exposition of Romans chapter nine through 11 right now, but just wanna make the point very clear that, that God has, when, when Paul says that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, he's not saying, well, let me say this positive what he is saying. He's saying God is not, God is not cast them out completely so that he's not gonna save any of them anymore. <laughs> That's his point. His point is that, no, God is not done with Israel as a, as a nation in the sense that he's not gonna save any of them anymore. Of course not, no. He's, he has a remnant within, within the people, as he always had. Flip over to chapter 11 and I'll just show you what Paul says here in this respect. <clears throat> chapter 11, verse one, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And what is Paul's response? For I too am, I, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. So he says, hey, I'm example A here, right? I, I, I am an Israelite. God, God is still saving Israelites, look at me. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Therefore, I have salvation in his name. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And we know that from what Steve has been telling us in the past several weeks, foreknew is, is election language, right? Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left and they are seeking my life, but what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, listen to the language, there has come to be at the present time, first century AD, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So this is the point I wanna make from this. When we think about Israel as a nation, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for them as we would pray for any other nation in the sense that God would call his people out from among them, right? As we would pray for the Ukrainian people or the Russian people or any other nation. We need to call, call on God to call out his people, his remnant from among the Israelites. And we certainly don't need to assume that they have an end with God, right? Jesus says to them, to the, to the Jewish nation in chapter 24 of Matthew, your house is left to you desolate, He's, he's done with them as a nation, uh, uh, dealing with them in that specific way. Now, God's people are drawn from where? Every tribe and tongue and people and language, right? So I know we all know this. I'm preaching to the choir, um, but it's worth stating because there's so much out there that can, can destabilize this, in this in, in, on this point. And we, and we need to just realize, we need to constantly have that in our mind that salvation is purely by grace, as Paul just said right here. It's, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Um, there's no end with God that anybody has, right? We're all in the same playing field, same footing. Um, if anyone's saved, it's through, it's through the blood of Jesus, right? Um, anyone, and the good news on the flip side is that anybody can become a child of God, right? From any nation, any tongue, right? So, um, I won't go on and on with that. I think we get the point. But if you, if you differ with me, that's fine, let's talk about it. Um, I, don't, I think most of us are on the same page, but maybe there's some who aren't. Um, but we can talk about that if, if you want to. That was kind of a, an aside for the, for the main point. The main point here is that we need, to, um, we need to put our trust in the Lord and make him our refuge. Um, because if you listen to the p- political pundits, you have people who say, well, we're on the brink of war, war, World War III and others, well, this is just a, a local skirmish that'll get resolved in due course. And the reality is nobody knows, right? It could be one, it could be the other. Only the Lord knows. It doesn't really matter from the perspective of being a Christian because we're always in war and at war. The greatest war of all time, the war of the principalities of of power and darkness against us and God and his Christ, that's always going on 24-7, right? And if we have that mindset that we're always a people at war, then these other, if I can say minor or lesser wars, I don't want to, to, to downplay them, they're real awful, terrible things, but they're not the ultimate war. The war of is, with Israel and Hamas, the war of the Ukrainian people with the Russians, these are not ultimate wars. The ultimate war is, is God and his Christ and, and the principalities and powers of darkness, these rulers of this, this world forces, these dark, these dark forces from Satan who are opposing the people of God and God himself. So anyways, um, why don't we pray, and, uh, and we will be dismissed. Lord, I thank you that you, um, Lord, give us your word to give us the right perspective on how we ought to be thinking about uh, our lives, Lord, day to day, just um, not, not worrying, not fretting, not being um, just in a, a state where we begin to put our trust in, in men, Lord. Um, Lord, this is all vain and and purposeless, Lord. Um, you have gained the victory, Lord. You have, you have conquered um, sin and death, which is definitely ultimate victory and the ultimate enemy that we have. Um, so, Lord, we, we're just thankful to you, Lord, that you uh, have accomplished this great work, and we ask that you would um, fill our hearts with it so that we can be mobilized to bring this good news to the world. Um, 
And Lord, that people would realize that even if they die, whether it's at the hands of, of enemies in a war or whatever, yet they can live, Lord. Uh, that there's an eternal life that comes, uh, comes freely uh, through the salvation in Christ. And Lord, we ask you to uh, fill our hearts with that reality this, this morning and uh, help us to live out of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.